Well, good morning. It is Memorial Day weekend. How about that, huh? It's where we take some time to honor folks who have uh, given their life and service to the country. So again, we want to take some time uh, to do that throughout this weekend. It's also a time though, where we get to spend uh, more time with our loved ones, right? So a lot of you I know are online watching us right now. Thanks for, for tuning in. You're probably in your bathing suits already, but we're all here being faithful. So there you go. Just deal with that. Make sure you have a good time today. Wear sunscreen or you end up looking like me. I am burnt to a crisp right now. Looking like a lobster like this. It's a bad lobster impression. My name is Nick, one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. Uh, it's really great to get a chance to be with you. And we got a lot to cover today, so we kind of got to get into it. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. We've been in a series we've called Level Up. Really kind of the, the heart behind this, this series is that you and I, for the most part, probably live with this sense that we're not, not quite who we could be. You know what I'm talking about? I kind of live with this sense that there's a better us possible, right? There's, there's sort of like who we are, and then there's this, this person that we feel like we could be. And so we all live with this sort of desire, this longing to grow. Am I right? To grow, to, to, to transform. We live towards possibility. We all want to live more and more in, into this person that we feel like we could be. We all want to level up. It's really what this series is all about. And the good news is this is exactly what's offered to us in Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our faith, of course, is the good news of God's complete and total forgiveness for all of the ways that we've blown it. Y'all blown it? That's good news, right? It's been taken care of in Jesus. But, but at the same time, at the heart of our faith, there, that also speaks about the possibility of transformation. You see, God loves you so much that not only does God want to forgive you, God wants to, wants to change you, wants to transform you, wants to help you become who you really are really are. And because of the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, we can experience growth, change, transformation. You and I can level up. And so what we've been doing uh, throughout this series is working our way through this really intriguing passage at the beginning of the letter of, of 2 Peter. This passage is loaded with all sorts of insights on, on what it looks like, what it means in practice to take hold of everything God has made, made available to us. And so before we go any further, let's reacquaint ourselves with this passage. Y'all out there? I'm thinking about bratwurst already. Me too. I'm just like, right, I'm just like there. I'm seeing right there. Second Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, the author says to us, his divine power, whew, whose power? His power. His divine power has given us, listen to this, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. Say, you, you, yes, you, through the power of the Holy Spirit can participate in the divine nature. You can be more and more, become more and more like God. That should blow your mind. Blows my mind. Where was I at? Verse four, thank you. And I already did verse four, didn't I? There we go. Thank you. Having escaped the corruption the world caused by evil desires. Verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Add to it goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, 
and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whew. Imagine what would happen to you if you read that kind of stuff every day. Hmm? If you meditated on stuff like that every single day, if you saturated your mind and your heart and your soul with, with truth like this every single day, do you think you'd be a little different? Yeah? We got a devotional out in the hallway for if you want to pick it up on your way out. You should give it a shot. But it's clear that the author, wouldn't you agree, the author has like, these really high level of confidence for the type of character you and I can have and for the quality of life that we can experience. Right? High level of confidence. And in the middle of this passage, the author lists these virtues. And what we've been doing in this series, we've been taking one virtue at a time. We've looked at goodness. We've looked at knowledge. We've looked at self-control. Last week, Daniel shared this a great message on perseverance. Did he not? How about that, Daniel? Yeah? Make some noise for him because he's not here. He's watching online. Wow, he's going to feel really loved after that. Way to go, Italian stallion. We love you, man. This week, though, we're, we're looking at this virtue called godliness. Godliness is not a word we use very often anymore. When's the last time you used the word? Been a while, probably, right? So, so what does it even mean? Well, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and the Greek word here is this word eusebia. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it's often translated as piety or devotion. But for me, it, it implies this sort of thoroughness, this sort of saturation. Right? In fact, one scholar even says this about it. I love, I love this definition. Godliness is an active, kinetic, ongoing obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. Ooh, that's some good stuff right there. But godliness carries with it this, this, this idea of, of thoroughness, of, of saturation. For me, what I think about when I think about godliness, I think about bread pudding. How many of y'all saw that coming? Yeah? It's not a sermon with Nick unless you're hungry, right? It's my job to get you hungry. But bread pudding. We got a picture of bread pudding, I think. There it is. Look at that. Gooey goodness. Believe it or not, I make a mean bread pudding. Probably didn't see that coming either, did you? I mean, I got it figured out. I know how to make a really great bread pudding. In fact, a couple years ago, we were at a, a family get-together, and I made the bread pudding. I think it was like Thanksgiving or something. And Lindsay's got this uncle who's maybe said like 10 words to me our entire relationship. And he took a bite of this bread pudding, stood up in front of everybody and goes, I need to know who made that bread pudding. I was like, this guy right here. He walked over, he planted the biggest, longest kiss on my cheek. Everybody just was like, what just happened? And then he walked and got seconds of the bread pudding, right? But here's, here's what I've learned. You know the difference between sort of mediocre bread pudding and like kiss on your face bread pudding? You know the difference is? How long do you let it soak? The best kind of bread puddings are bread pudding you leave in there overnight. And you give time for all those amazing ingredients, the butter, the sugar, all that, sort of work its way through all of the bread. Are you with me? So you know what godliness is? Godliness is a life that has been saturated by the grace of God. Not just a little bit, but man, the grace of God has gotten into every nook and cranny, every, every dark corner, every locked door. The grace of God has worked its way through all of that. It's been saturated their entire life. This is what godliness 
is all about. Are you feeling it? You get an idea of what we're talking about here, right? It is, it's, it's saturation. Now, here's where I, I, wanna, I wanna kinda slow down a bit. I feel like we gotta be a little careful with this word, though, too. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, but it, it's a word that kinda has a, a sort of aura about it. It sounds a little snobby. Are you with me? I mean, at first, when I hear the word godliness, it sounds kind of like stuck up, right? I mean, who do you think of when you think of somebody who's godly? I mean, usually when we refer to somebody as godly, I don't know if we always mean it as a compliment. Often we mean it as like prudish, right? These are people who struggle to have a good time. They need to lighten up a little bit. And I mean, for me, if you've been in the church for any, any, any period of time and uh, you've come up against its, its less than lovely side, this word can have some baggage to it. It sounds like this religious word, it's like a synonym for holier than thou or self-righteousness. Am I right? But see, this can't be what godliness means. It can't be because this is what Jesus was like. I mean, Jesus was anything but prudish. In fact, the people who were, they didn't like being around Jesus. He got in trouble for having too much fun, for for spending time with people he shouldn't have. This this can't be what what godliness is all about. I mean, Jesus had this way about him, this sort of presence that that invited, like the broken and the busted, it invited him closer in, invited him closer, and and, and it inspired them to stop, stop settling for less. Didn't squish people. This can't be what, what godliness is all about. I mean, the most, most easy way to break down this word in the English, godliness is short for God-likeness. That's what it's short for. And for you and I, you know what the good news is? We've got a really clear picture of what that looks like. Jesus. I mean, this is the core conviction of what it means to be a Christian. Christians disagree about a whole lot of stuff. Are you aware of that? What we have from the very beginning. We've got all this room to disagree about things. But you know what the one thing is we have in common? This is the core conviction. Uh, this is the, 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 the most foundational bedrock thing. about What does it mean to be a Christian? It means this. It means the God behind all of this looks like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So what I want us to do this morning, if you're okay with it, is I want us to take a look. What did Jesus' godliness look like? What did it look like? Begin to explore, what does this godliness look like when it's offered to us? And then we'll turn the corner. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this or you try to get out of here before it's over. But I want us to wrestle with what does it then look like for us to demonstrate this godliness to others? You with me? And so we're gonna spend the rest of our time in this really infamous encounter in John chapter eight, if you wanna go ahead and flip there. John's a really great gospel for us to go to if we want to learn what, is, what does godliness look like? What does godlikeness look like? Because out of all the gospel writers, John is his, the most blatant, the most in our face, and his belief that Jesus wasn't just another teacher, but Jesus was, in fact, God with skin on. In fact, John opens his gospel by telling us the word became flesh. One of the things the, the author of John wants us to, to see and feel and know and believe is the fact that, man, the God of the universe looks like Jesus. And this encounter in John chapter eight is pretty infamous. I think you'll be familiar with it once I read it to you. John eight, starting in verse one. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. 
and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. So she's been caught in the act. Talk about awkward, right? She's busted. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in this woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. You gotta wonder, where's the guy, right? Where's the guy? Why isn't he there too? Truth is, the Pharisees, religious folks, have, they're not really concerned with what happened here. They're just trying to trap Jesus. That's really what this is all about. And so they don't, they don't bring the guy. But they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because here's the thing, the Romans at the time, they didn't allow the Jewish folks to do uh, any type of execution, right? If they're gonna stone this woman, she's gonna die. Romans didn't let him do that. But if he doesn't condemn this woman, in their mind, he's going against the law. And so he's breaking a religious, they're trying to trap him. This is what Jesus does, such a gangster. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. What do you think he was writing? You ever wondered that? Hold on, we'll come back to it in a little bit. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, tell you what, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I love this part. I just kind of like imagining how it went down. And here's this woman. I think she's been crying. Probably the dirt and the dust is like caked on her face. And she's standing there and it's just her and Jesus. And Jesus looks around and he says, where, where are all your condemners? There's nobody left. And she says, nobody's left. And then maybe for the first time, Jesus stops writing in the dirt and looks up at her eye to eye. He says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And you have to wonder, like, how long did he let those words just kind of sit there? Just kind of hang in the air. And then he speaks this incredible word of empowerment to her. Go now and leave your life of sin. Come on. How beautiful is this passage. It's amazing. There's so much going on here. And I want us to take a look at it kind of from both, both angles. But I would say the first thing we can, we can learn about what Jesus' godliness looks like is that it's dirty. Jesus' godliness is dirty. It's messy. I mean, think about how this woman's encounter with Jesus begins. There's nothing clean and tidy and nice about it. I mean, she's been caught in the act of adultery. She's been dragged in front of all these people. She's barely clothed at best, and she's standing there in front of all these people, in front of Jesus, completely exposed. You know what I found? The realest kind of growth, change, transformation, it's exactly where it begins. Begins in those, in those times in our lives, whether, whether we decide to do it ourselves or we get dragged into it like this woman, where we are exposed, where, where we're found out, 
where the, when the bottom drops out and we realize there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide, this is what it is. When we get to that place, I've found that that's the place where real growth, like the kind of growth that actually sticks around for a while. Not New Year's resolutions growth that begins to fade like right about now, you know? But like real growth, it begins from that place. A place where we're just, we're exposed. Dallas Willard is one of my favorite thinkers, authors. I remember him saying one time that growing up is really just a matter of learning how to control your face. Think about little kids. Little kids, they don't know how to control their face. They haven't learned how to work, work their face muscles yet. It's like whatever a little kid's feeling, you're gonna see it on their face, right? For instance, how do you think my youngest child feel, felt about taking Easter pictures this Sunday? We got that picture? How do you think she felt? Ugh. And then how do you think her older sister felt about how she was acting about it? We got that picture? Not happy, not happy. The kids, they don't know how to control the muscles in their face. It's like, you wanna know what a kid's thinking or feeling? Just look at them. They'll tell you, they will give it away. But they'll learn how to control their face, won't they? They'll learn. They'll get hurt. They'll get betrayed. They'll have something used against them they thought never would be used against them. They'll experience a cold shoulder. They'll learn how to control their face, won't they? I'm not sure they're better off for it. Because you see, it's like the older we get and the more scars we carry around, it's like the better we get at hiding. And the scary thing is after a while, what we do is we start to confuse ignorance for growth. Man, just pretend like it's not there. Act like it's not a thing and it won't be a thing. But you and I both know. And just pretend like something isn't there doesn't mean it isn't there, am I right? Acting like it doesn't matter doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Proverbs chapter 30, there's this, this really great prayer that I've been kind of coming back to over, over the past six months. I just keep coming back to it. It's funny, this is actually the passage I was assigned in Bible college. First time I ever had to write a sermon was on this passage. I didn't know what I know now about it, but I just keep coming back to this prayer. It's really powerful. Listen to what he says. It says, two things I ask of you, Lord, and do not refuse me before I die. Don't you love the audacity there? Listen to me, God. Two things I ask of you before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And there's so much here. But I love how it begins. Two things I ask of you, Lord. First one is this, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Now, at first, you might be thinking he's talking about all those liars out there. Keep all those people who tell lies, keep, keep them far away from me. But man, when you look at the rest of the prayer, it's this prayer like self-awareness. I mean, he says, listen, don't give me too much stuff because I know what I'm gonna do with it. I know what'll happen. Now, when I, when I think he, the prayer is keep falsehood and lies, you know what he's talking about? Lord, keep me from believing my own lies. Keep me from believing my own baloney. Help me be honest with myself, about myself. That's one of the hardest things you have to learn how to do in life, is practice self-awareness. 
being honest with ourselves about ourselves. A couple weeks ago, made some chocolate chip muffins. Man, what's up with all the baked goods today? It's Memorial Day, right? Memorial Day weekend, that's what it is. I made some homemade chocolate chip muffins for the kids because Gigi, my middle, she loves chocolate chip muffins and she wanted daddy to make some. So I made them. And because I'm trying to eat clean, guess what? Didn't need any until everybody went to bed. <laughs> because it's like, if nobody sees, did it really happen? But here's the thing. I knew it was going to be a thing. Like, as soon as I ate it, I was like, why did you do that? Because there was just enough muffins for the kids to have one for breakfast the next morning, and now we were one short. So as soon as I ate it, I was like, oh, man, this is not going to go well. Next morning, as soon as the kid's up, of course, the kids make it a thing. It's a thing. Who ate the muffin? We're short of muffin. Dad, did you eat the muffin? I was like, of course I didn't eat the muffin. I didn't eat it. It's almost like I made up some weird story about how maybe the dog reached up on the counter and was able to, like, pluck a solitary muffin out of the tin without knocking it over and making a mess, right? And then my wife looked at me, and she said, Honey, you still have chocolate on your face from last night's snack. Busted. Busted. You know what growing in godliness is all about? It's a matter of recognizing all the ways we've got chocolate on our face. It's like when we allow the grace of God to light us up, to find us out, to search every single nook and cranny and to give us the courage to be honest with ourselves about ourselves, not just in the big obvious ways, but like in the less obvious ways too. In all the ways it would be so much easier just to stay ignorant about it. I mean, like your motives. Man, you ever let God kind of search you in your motives? Not just what you do, but like why you're actually doing it. When's the last time you've, you felt sort of ruined? Like you've just been like convicted to your core about something. About how like the subtle way sometimes we, we like slightly exaggerate the truth just to make ourselves look a little bit better than we actually are. Why do we do that? What's up with that? You know, even for me lately, it's like whenever there's this, I've been trying to do this, I'm not great at it, but like whenever there's a, a, a conflict between me and somebody else, there's some friction there. I've been trying so hard lately to like fight the impulse to jump automatically to all the reasons why it's their fault. We do that, don't we? I mean, it's like the first thing we do. There's conflict, there's friction here. Let me come up with what's my list? Why is it their fault? I've been trying to fight that. Instead, go, wait a minute. We'll get there. Believe me, we'll get there. But first, like, what in me? is causing this. It's like, why am I so impatient with that person? What's often me that's making it very easy for them to get under my skin, right? Or, or what is it about their success that I find so threatening? Ooh, that was hard to admit, isn't it? Or why am I so insecure when I'm around that group of people? Like, what is it in me that God has to work on? This is what God, it's a thoroughness, it's a saturation. It's about letting the grace of God work its way into every single nook and cranny. I'm telling you, godliness is dirty, it's messy, but you know what else? It's really, really good. It's better than we can possibly imagine. Let's go back to the text. Can we do that, John chapter eight? You still awake? Brought worse, brought worse, brought worse. John chapter eight. Again, my favorite part of this encounter, this interaction between Jesus and the woman, it takes place after everybody's left, and it's just the two of them. It's just the two of them. 
And Jesus asks her, where did everybody go? Does nobody condemn you? And she says, nobody. And Jesus says to her these words, God, we gotta, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. We, we gotta let this sink in. Remember, Jesus told the crowd, I'll tell you what, whoever's without sin, you go ahead and throw, th throw the first stone. One by one, they all leave until Jesus is the only one left. Hear me, Jesus was the only one who had the right to condemn her. Remember, John wants us to know Jesus isn't just another person. He's, he's God with skin on. He's the word become flesh, which means he's the only one without sin. He's the only one who has the authority to condemn her. And guess what? He doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, more than anything, I think what the author of John wants us to see in this encounter is that the God revealed to us in Jesus is a God who does not condemn us. It's a God who is, who is for us. It's a God who is very much on our side. Somebody say amen to that. You know, for a lot of people, maybe you're here today, this is your first time coming to church in a while, I don't know, or maybe you've been here for a long time, but for a lot of people, being a Christian gets made to sound like you just have a bunch of stuff to feel guilty about. Right, we've heard this before. It's like it's sort of religious voices that go off in our head and they say, listen, God is really holy. God is very godly. He's very good. He's perfect. And you, well, let's just be honest. You're awful. You're awful. You're horrible. And sometimes it gets made to sound like the only way to respond to a good God is to feel really bad about yourself. And the gospel can be presented sometimes as like, okay, God's up in heaven and he's really mad at us. It's like God's always just sort of angry. He's gotta do something with all that anger. And so what does he do? Well, he just sends Jesus to take the beating for us. So he doesn't have to be so angry. I'm gonna tell you what, that's not the gospel. Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our mind about God to show you that God is way better than you can possibly imagine. He's not some weird celestial projection of your parents, of that teacher you had that made you feel this big. That's not who God is. You wanna know what God looks like? The clearest picture we have of what God looks like is Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ looking at his enemies saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It's just love and blessing and acceptance over and over and over again. This is who God is. This is the gospel, my friends. This is where growth begins and ends. It's about allowing ourselves to be confronted with the truth of who God really is. I'm just gonna share this with you right now. I'm nervous about this. I am. Let me give you a sense of, of what this kind of looks like for me. I'm, I'm nervous because it's gonna require me to get a little vulnerable and this might be a little weird for some of y'all, but you know what? I'm 36, I'm almost dead, I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> Over the past year, I just, I just felt this like stirring in me. It's like all this stuff kind of just getting stirred up. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, I'm a parent and I don't know if that has something to do with it, but like a lot of stuff that would have been just really easy to stay ignorant about the rest of my life, can't do it anymore. There's like stuff that I gotta work on, stuff I gotta confront, stuff I gotta deal with. And so I've just kind of felt it like stirred up. At the same time, I've really felt this pull towards what some people call a more contemplative type of life. Contemplation, contemplative is a fancy word for, for people who, who wanna emphasize like encounter with God. It's like, I'm, I'm not okay with just knowing about, I wanna like actually experience God. Like I, I wanna like interact with God. I want to meet with God. I've just come out of a, a heavy season of my life where the emphasis is on like learning about. I just graduated from seminary last spring. It only took me seven years, right? 
A lot of people spend seven years in school. They're doctors. I'm not. I'm a master of divinity, but it sounds way cooler, right? But like for seven years, the emphasis on reading books and learning about God, learning about God, learning about God. And I'm kind of like this point, like, I just want to put some of the books away. And I just like want to sit with God. Like, I want to actually know God. I want God to know me. And so I've been, I've been trying to do this, carve out time in the morning where I just, I just sit there. And I'm just, I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to be honest about who I am and where I'm at. All of it, good, bad, ugly. I'm just gonna like, like that woman in front of Jesus, barely close. I'm just gonna stand there. I'm just gonna be me. I'm gonna let you, God, do whatever you want. I can't tell you how this has impacted my life. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy. It's like, well, aren't you a pastor? Shouldn't you do that? Yeah, I guess, but when's the last time you did it? And the other day, this, this amazing thing happened. It, was, it wasn't during my morning time, whatever you want to call it. It was, happened throughout the through everyday course of just a normal day. I was shutting our front door at our house. And I was standing there in the foyer, and God said something to me. Not in some voice, I don't know what else to call it. But God spoke. In a way, you couldn't help but hear it. This is what he said. You're doing really well. I'm proud of you. You see, as I sat with God over the time, over the weeks and weeks and weeks, this thing started to come up to my mind. I became much more aware of this. Is that I don't really like myself. I don't. It's not some like blatant hate for myself. It's more like this smoldering discontent where you kind of wish you were like somebody else. You ever feel that? That's why if you're feeling some need to write me an email and talk me out of feeling that way, stop. I'm not telling you this to counsel me, all right? I'm telling you this because I have a feeling if you got quiet enough for long enough, you would admit you feel something similar. But in this moment, it was like God knew that. He spoke into my condition. Nick, you're doing pretty well. I'm proud of you. And I, it was, I know the difference between positive self-talk. This wasn't just me thinking something I've thought before. No, this was a different voice. This was a, a voice that wasn't mine. And it spoke in a way where I couldn't help but believe it. I'm starting to believe it. I'm doing pretty well. And God's really proud of me. See, the heart of this series is we all want to grow. Am I right? We want to grow. We want to change. We want to become this person. We feel like we, we just feel like we could be this person. You know what's foundational to that happening? Is you on a regular basis carving out some time to just sit there with God. Honestly, don't try to clean it up. Warts and all, everything. Just be whatever you are right now. Be that in a conscious presence of God and let God love you right there in the middle of that. Let God love, I promise you it'll change you. I promise you. There's somebody else on the other line. Do you hear me? So maybe you're here and there's like something you're caught up in right now and you, and you know it's bad, you know it's really, really bad. It's not a good thing. You're caught up in it. Here's what I want you to do. Just be that. Be that in the presence of God. Admit it. This thing in my life, it's unmanageable. It's not good, it's not healthy. And even have the, have the courage to admit, you know what, I really don't wanna get rid of it either. I know it's bad, but I kinda like it. Just be that in the presence of God. Let God love you there. And you know what you'll find if you do that enough? God will start to change what you want. Start to transform you from the inside out. God will give you desire for something else, something better. 
then eventually this thing that's got its hooks in you, it'll start to look less appealing. In fact, it'll start getting on your nerves because it's getting in the way of this better thing that God wants for you anyway. But this happens as a result of us putting ourselves in the presence of this God who looks like Jesus. We're not done yet. The clock says I got three minutes. We'll see about that. Because, you know, the woman isn't the only one who had an encounter with Jesus that day. Those people with the rocks, they had one too. And the thing is, we gotta recognize we got a lot more in common with those people than we'd like to admit. Y'all wondered what Jesus wrote in the dirt? There's all sorts of opinions on this, all sorts of commentaries telling you what they think. Truth is, nobody knows, but I did come across one insight that I thought was really fascinating. Now, John chapters seven through nine take place during what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a week-long festival. It was a, a religious holiday. People would come from all over the world, come to celebrate this feast. And it was a feast in which they would look back to the Exodus story. I remember the Exodus story. When the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt. What we find is once that happens and they're, they're on their way to the promised land, they end up rebelling against God, and as a result of that rebellion, they spend 40 years wandering around the wilderness. But the thing is, God didn't leave them out there by themselves. God actually traveled with the people in something known as the tabernacle. And so what the people would do during this feast is they would build these little makeshift tabernacles, and they would sleep in them all week long. They wouldn't sleep in their homes. They'd sleep in these tabernacles. And what they would do throughout this week is not only remember their ancestors and their rebellion, but they would start to reflect on their own rebellion and all the ways in which they were in the wilderness because they weren't being faithful to God. And they would, they would celebrate the mercy of God, even despite our own rebellion. They spent a whole week reflecting on this. It feels a lot like our season of Lent before we celebrate Easter. So all week long, they're, they're ruminating on this, they're, they're, they're reflecting on this, and there are these passages that they would use like a select group of passages that they would pray their way through, that they would meditate on, that they would read over and over and over and over again. Well, one of those passages comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Here's what it says. O hope of Israel, O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dust. For they have forsaken, they have forgotten the fountain of living water. You know what I think Jesus wrote in the dirt? He wrote their names. The names of all the people who were there holding a rock. I mean, they had just spent an entire week reorienting themselves around the mercy of God, the compassion of God towards them, even in the midst of their rebellion. And here they were ready to condemn this woman to death. This was a passage they knew some of them had just probably prayed it that morning. By writing their names in the dirt, Jesus is confronting them with the fact they'd lost the plot. Do you see how far away you've come from all this? You know, leveling up, it's not something we do over and above other people. And growth isn't something we measure at other people's expense. See, often what you and I, we don't, we don't like to deal with our own brokenness. And so what we love to do is just point out everybody else's brokenness. 
It's like, I can feel a little bit better about my junk if I just point out why your junk is so much worse than mine. It's like that, that, that bear joke, you know what I'm talking about? People say, you don't have to outrun a bear, you just gotta outrun everybody else. I think we do that with each other often. It's like we love to pick out how so-and-so doesn't have it all together, how so-and-so is a bit off, how so-and-so's life's a mess, and it's all this attempt to avoid confronting all the ways in which our life's a mess. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this story about two people being at the temple. One of them's a Pharisee. Man, he's up there in front. He's got all his robes on, and he's praying out loud, God, thank you so much, not like all these sinners. And then there's this other person there, there's a tax collector, standing off at a distance. He's beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that man, the tax collector, went home right with God. Godliness, growth, is not something that we gain at other people's expense. I mean, when Jesus talked about growth, he didn't talk about people who, who were growing in some sort of certainty about how they were right and everybody else was wrong. Jesus talked about growth in terms of fruit. It's becoming a certain type of person who has a particular type of presence in the world. Not the kind of presence that squashes people, but the kind of presence that invites people in. Particularly people who, who are having a hard time believing that things can get better. And I'm just gonna say it, I'm sorry, but I feel like often the church, man, we carry around the biggest rocks. We do. Religious people struggle with this more than anybody else. Sometimes I feel like we forget our place in the world. It's like we think it's our job to be some sort of moral guardian where we get to decide who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong, who's good and who's not. Can I just tell you something? That's not our job. That's not our job. Our job is to create opportunity for people to encounter Jesus. That's our job. One of my favorite thinkers, Alan Hirsch, church leader, he talks about how in Australia, in Australia, cattle ranchers, right? People who raise cattle, that's what cattle ranchers do. They're, these ranches are so big, they're massive, they're huge, they're like the size of a county. What they found is it's really inefficient to try and build fences around the whole thing. Because for one, it take you too long, but then two, the upkeep is ridiculous because by the time you, you build it over here, you gotta go fix this one over here. So they don't build fences. You know what they found? They found that cattle never get too far away from sources of water. So cattle ranches in Australia, they build, they build wells. They don't build fences. I think it's the church's job to build wells, not build fences. It's to create place, opportunity for people to belong, maybe even before they believe to experience some sort of connection, some sense of belonging, some sense of love, to encounter Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? So as we, as we wrap this up, I just want us to wrestle with, how do, you, how do you need to respond to this message? You know, maybe you're here this morning and there's some sort of mess you need to get way more honest with. Remember, growth and ignorance aren't the same thing. Maybe there's something this morning that you need to like own up to, perhaps for the first time. Just say it out loud. Sometimes hearing yourself say it can be a really powerful thing. Maybe you're here today and your, your picture of God doesn't look anything like Jesus. It looks like your parents. It looks like those people that, that bullied you in school. It looks like that boss you had that 
and loves to make you feel really small, whatever. It doesn't look like Jesus. Maybe this morning what you need is to invite the Holy Spirit. This is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us in our core that more than anything else, we're loved by God. We're accepted by God. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to drop a few rocks. Maybe there's some people that you've labeled, some people you've put in a hole, some sort of grudge, lack of forgiveness, whatever it is. What would it look like to you extend grace to them to drop the rocks, to look a little bit more like Jesus? I'm just gonna give us some space right now. Just sit. We're not gonna have a final song. We're just gonna sit in this moment. I just want you to trust, again, that there's a God on the other side. There's a God on the other line. Open yourself up maybe to hearing from God right now, right here in this space. Do business with God. Oh God, you are, you are better than we can imagine. Lord, I just pray that in this space that you do actually do something in us. I know most of us, we come here every week, but little's actually happened. Lord, prove yourself to us right now. Speak to us. Put your finger on something. Speak to us in a way that we can't deny, that we can't avoid. The only thing we can do is trust it, believe it. Pray for all of us in this room who, who struggle with being really honest. We've bought into some narrative we've come up to protect ourselves. Help us just to, just to let it go. Pray for those of us who've allowed things like shame and trauma to go so deep into us that Lord, we believe that's who we are. Lord, confront us with your love. The fact that there's nothing we can do to make us make you love us any less. Nothing we can do. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we, as we measure this thing called growth, that we didn't measure it in how be much better we were than everybody else, but we would measure it in how much we look like you and our ability and our willingness to extend to people patience, grace, compassion, empathy, to be people who are quick to forgive, who are also quick to lift up, quick to serve, quick to love. We thank you for Jesus. It's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. Amen and amen. Church, I hope you have a really, really great weekend. And as you go, may you be people of godliness, people who live lives saturated in the grace of God. Amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.